Hello, my name is John Smetanka, and the name of our program is With Respect. This week on With Respect, we visit with Robin Allen, the owner of Forever Books in St. Joseph, Michigan, for our four times a year uh, chat about current books as the seasons pass. Today, we're going to be talking about autumn, fall books, and uh, what's out there now and what uh, is good and trends. We'll be talking about a number of things. At any rate, we'll be talking to now Robert Allen, Forever Books, with respect. Robin, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks, John. Thanks Good. for having me. Yeah, it's always fun because we get to talk about my favorite topic, which is books. And, Mine too. And yours too. So, Robin, it's the autumn, the fall. We've gone through the beach reads, the summer, uh, and now we're now we're settling down. The big M, pardon me, W word is out there, but we, we're going to fight it off. And we're going to deal with the F word. Oh, yeah, the F word fall. So what's, well, out, what's uh, out there? Well, I'll tell you, John, the fall season is the time when publishers bring out all their books. More books are released in the fall than any other time during the year. And this is because if it doesn't sell in September, October, November, then they get a second chance at, at the holiday buying season. So it, it's, it's really quite a bounty of books. So the first one I'm going to start with is I'm going to start with nonfiction. And a really good book was by CNN journalist Anderson Cooper that came out last year, or a couple of years ago. It was Vanderbilt. It was about his family. Very interesting. This time... He has followed up Vanderbilt with an exhaustive history of the Astor family. Uh, really fascinating. And it, the, the story begins with John Jacob Astor, who was a German immigrant. And he was the son of a German butcher. And he arrived in America in 1783 uh, selling cakes and cookies in the streets of Manhattan. But he kept his eye out for anyone trading in furs, which was quite a lucrative commodity. I mean, it, it got to the point where uh, the beaver was hunted to extinction in Europe. And at the, by the age of 35, he was worth 250000 To give you an idea, a family in Manhattan could live comfortably for a year on about $750. Mm. So uh, he... he you know, follows that colorful family members. They became, he went from furs to becoming, uh, buying a property in New York and became just ruthless landlords. All those tenements, uh, most of them asters. Mm. Uh, you follow, you know, some were philanthropists and started libraries and all of this, but, uh, you know, a lot of them preferred horse racing and yachts. Uh, <laughs> one of them was disgruntled um, William Waldorf, Ast Waldorf Astor. And his wife insisted she was the Mrs. Astor, and Caroline Astor said, no, she was. So to get back at, at Caroline Astor's side of the family, he built the Waldorf Hotel mm. right next to her house. Mm -hmm. which led to 
the other side of the family raising her house and building the Astoria, and it eventually it joined together. But he ended up moving to England and renounced his citizenship, and went after he he went after he tried to become uh, a baron. Eventually, he did become a vicomte, but he was pretty much considered a sort of a joke kind of thing. But uh, probably one of the most famous ones was John Astor the Fourth, who perished on the Titanic, which subsequent generations had a long downward spiral after that, after the death of that. So history buffs and readers interested, fascinated by the rich and famous will really enjoy this. And it just so happens we have some signed books of these coming, or actually they're in already. So, Well, you know, it's interesting you mention that because the there is a Michigan connection to the Astors, and that is that uh, they had a fur trading post up on Mackinac Island or Mackinac City, I don't remember which. And uh, no, the north part of the uh, lower peninsula of Michigan, or the island there, in between the north, uh, b- between the upper and lower peninsulas. So there is, in fact, a uh, strong connection because there was a lot of fur trading uh, coming through yeah. the uh, Mackinac Island uh, area. I had no idea. He had hundreds of trading posts and had a monopoly on these hundreds of trading posts, and had Native Americans hunting for the pelts and traded, unfortunately, uh, got them involved in alcohol. So, uh, you know, there's some really sketchy stuff there. But, you know, one of the things I remember is that you talk about the Vanderbilts and the Astros. Weren't they in competition with each other in terms of who was the the top dog or the, the most important person in the society? Yes, the uh, Astros were first, and Vanderbilts were considered newer money. <laughs> and there was a whole thing of their of of a ball that was put on by the Astros, and I, it, it was. I, I this is sort of mentioned in here. There are a lot of stories, so there's a, a lot in here, and I haven't quite finished the book yet. So, uh, eventually, I guess the Astor Hotel was a hangout for gay. It was a, a rendezvous. Hmm. At one point, so I, I haven't gotten to that part yet, okay. but I, I've gotten to the point where the John Jacob Astor the uh, Fourth has uh, perished in the Titanic, with the mm-hmm. Titanic, and what happened to his wife and his children, child, children. What's next? Okay, so this one we're going to the Old West. Uh, I really enjoyed this one as well, and this is called Son of the Old West. By, by Nathan Ward. Nathan Ward, his, uh, he's written quite a few books. His, he wrote one, The Lost Detective, Becoming Dashiell Hammett, which was nominated for Edgar for Mystery, and Anthony Ward's. So he's been the editor for American Heritage Magazine for years. He's written for Wall Street Journal, New York Times. This time he's written a book of a vibrant portrait of Charles Seringo, who lived from 1855 to 1928. He started out at 12 years old driving cattle and always wanted to be a cowboy in 1860. So pretty dangerous business. And he did that for years uh, and ended up uh, on these great cattle drives in his encounters. Uh, he, he knew Bat Masterson, Billy the Kid, and Wyatt Earp. And I think in the 18, I think 1885, he writes this book called The Texas Cowboy. He was the one who invented the idea of a cowboy as a heroic figure and sold a, a lot of his books, really quite a few, became a bestseller. And in his 30s, he became a Pinkerton detective. I think it was based in Denver. And he was part of, he infiltrated the outlaw gangs like Butch Cassidy's train robbing Wild Bunch. And uh, so it's, it's quite, quite a story. And in his aged years, he he wrote a, another book about his life as a Pinkerton detective. Unfortunately, the Pinkertons sued him, and the poor man fell on hard times. But he ended up in Hollywood helping out with uh, early silent Western films. Hmm. So, yeah, fascinating, fascinating stuff. That's Son of the Old West by Nathan Ward. Well, you and I have talked about this this concept in life of uh, uh, the zigs and zags, 
that people go through, and, and very few people who have appeared as guests on this show, we're up to about 600, 700 people uh, over the years, <clears throat> very few of them, I could probably say six or seven at the most, started off at age six thinking they wanted to be musicians, and they went straight through, never, no deviations uh, to whatever yeah. accomplishment they had when they were in their 50s, 60s, 70s. But most of us, and most of my guests, the people who are are really interesting are, in fact, riders of the zigzag. Things, mm-hmm. a death, a birth, a marriage, a divorce, a child, all these things, new job, old job, fired, this, and all of these things um, tend to sit in people, the back of people's minds, and some of them will say, most people say quietly, in the dark of night, gee, if I had only gone on a straight line to where I'm at now, uh, how much more, how farther ahead could I be? And I think Mm. the reality is that those zigs and zags are what make us interesting. Mm. And without without the zigs and zags, you know, some of my one of my straight liners, as it were, uh, would uh, were their personal life are kind of boring, but in their in their profession, their skill, they were very good. But at any rate, so you've got this You're poor right. fellow who is uh, yeah. bounced around and and uh, writes books from different perspectives. It's great. I mean, I started out as a botany major at University of Michigan. Ah, so. <laughs> And then went to special ed and then dropped out of school and went to floral design school and ran a flower shop. I was in direct sales and I went back to school and taught school, uh, learned to fly a plane and then ended up in book selling. So, you know, it's, you're right. It's been an interesting life. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. What's next? So next I have a couple of memoirs, a few memoirs, um, are they all memoirs or biographies? They are memoirs. And the first one I finished and I thought was charming and wonderful. It's a warm-hearted story. It's by Henry Winkler, and it's called Being Henry, Being the Fonz and Beyond. I, I was a, a bit skeptical, but uh, he, it, it, it's like, it, it, you know, it's a self-deprecating introspective and he writes stories he tells stories like he would be at a dinner party with friends that's how it reminded me of but he goes deep into his troubled relationships with his holocaust surviving parents and they were german and they they called him in german dumb dog because he had this you know these failures as a child in 1950s new york city as a but that's what they called him was dumb dog. So he did not get diagnosed with dyslexia till he was 31 and realized that his son had it. So uh, really, uh, and it also covers his struggle to find work following his, you know, superstar breakthrough as Arthur Franzarelli on Happy Days. And he does become this co-author of a very successful children's book series called Hank Zipser, who is also dyslexic. Uh, so it, it really is a moving memoir. And he said, we have signed copies, and he has told his publisher that any store that has signed copies, he's going to mention in his uh, during his author tour. So we'll see about that. <laughs> anyway, okay. Another one I, uh, is there's not too many reviews about these two. Everything's been kept hush hush. One is called "Making It So" by Patrick Stewart. You may know him, yes, from Star Trek and also as Professor Charles Xavier in um, the X Men series. But he is a classically trained theater artist who got a start at England's Royal Shakespeare Company and has won all kinds of awards, including a Grammy. But the, the only thing that is, is on the reviews you can find are by author Michael Chabon and Sir Ian McKellen, who's a friend of his, and Whoopi Goldberg, who was on his Star Trek series. And they just think it's wonderful. They just think it's wonderful. So that's all I can tell you about that. But I'm a big Star Trek fan, so I will be <laughs> reading. And Making It So comes from Star Trek, where mm-hmm. 
he says, make it so, um, to his number two in command. The other memoir is a long-awaited memoir by Barbara Streisand. And, of course, it's called My Name is Barbara by Barbara Streisand. Mm -hmm. And there is nothing about that. So she's keeping it hush-hush, no surprise. Mm -hmm. No surprise. And my last nonfiction is a cookbook, believe it or not. I don't know if I've ever done a cookbook on your show before. But this is a special one because it is the world central kitchen cookbook feeding humanity feeding hope and it's by jose andres who is in charge of the world central kitchen it's a nonprofit uh, founded by him that provides uh, food for for food and healing around the world in times of disaster so it's in response he provides meals in response to humanitarian climate and community crises and it cooks for thousands of people multiple times a day, often without basic resources like electricity. So the, the recipes take readers on a journey to a variety of their operations around the world from Haiti to Ukraine. There's wonderful photography, gorgeous food images, and preparations are generally designed for four to eight people, but can be scaled up so you know, if you want to do it for a church or a soup kitchen or VFW or firehouses, uh, it, it, it's really good. And, and there's a foreword by Stephen Colbert, mm-hmm. but it's divided into sections like urgency focuses on food that can be eaten on the go. And the hope section, readers will find soup and stews and comforting meals. Uh, some famous people have recipes in there. Michelle Obama has one, uh, Emma Lagasse, Tyler Florence. Uh, and also Chef Guy Fieri. So, and all proceeds from his, all author proceeds from this cookbook would be used to support the World Central Kitchen's emergency response efforts. You know, I think I've seen this fellow on uh, some on television program. They highlighted just what you're talking about. A fascinating guy. Absolutely fascinating. Fascinating guy. He just gets, I think it started with Haiti. I'm not sure. No, I Long think- time ago. I think you're right. I think you're right. And just went to, I mean, he just went to his friends and companies and just, and people responded. And it's just an amazing, amazing story. It really is. All right. We're going to take a break right now. We're talking to Robin Allen, who is the uh, owner and major domo at Forever Books, beautiful downtown St. Joseph, Michigan. And we're talking about... Books in the autumn, in the fall. We'll be right back. back on with respect with Robin Allen, who is the owner and uh, chief cook and bottle washer at Forever Books in beautiful downtown St. Joseph, Michigan. This is John Smetanka on With Respect. So, you've talked about nonfiction, but there's some of us that are you know, stuck in of the world. We want to get to somebody else's world, some imagination, <laughs> going fiction. Tell me about it. Okay, so I have a couple of murder mysteries uh, uh, focusing around a murder. And the first one is called Golden Gate, and that's by Amy Chua, C-H-U-A. She is, this is her first book, and it's a really thrilling fiction debut from this Yale law professor. And it anchors on a mind-bending murder mystery in... Actually, it's more like an old-fashioned detective novel set in the 1940s San Francisco. So there's a report of gunfire that brings this detective, Al Sullivan, 
to room 604 in this luxurious hotel. And inside, he finds William Wilkinson. He's a rich industrialist with political aspirations. He's, he's totally fine. Uh, everything except there's a bullet hole in the wall seems perfectly normal. And a hotel employee tells him, we thought you'd been murdered. And he says, I have been. And a few hours later, he is indeed found dead. So Sullivan launches this official investigation. So early evidence points out to there's three beautiful granddaughters of a wealthy socialite, Genevieve. And, and Genevieve's youngest sister, Iris, happened to be murdered in the same hotel room a decade earlier. So the story alternates between Genevieve's uh, deposition and Detective Sullivan's first-person first narrative back and forth, which is really interesting. There's a few real-life figures in the story. One is Margaret Chung, the first Chinese woman to become a physician in the United States. So Amy Chu has written a, another book called Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, but it's a nonfiction. Um, so that one is a really good, really good book. So I did not read it, but it sounds fascinating. The, very good review. The Tiger Mother, isn't that, didn't uh, that get a lot of attention maybe three or four years yes. ago? Yes. It was about the way she raised her children yeah. and the way she was raised. Mm -hmm. uh, how uh, children have to learn a, a musical instrument, usually the violin. Very tough, tough uh, standards for these children to get good grades mm -hmm. and to ex excel. She did get quite a bit for that. So I think she might do really well with this, even more with this uh, with this murder mystery. Okay. What's next? Uh, okay, this one we're going back to uh, the end of the Civil War. This is one of my favorite authors of all time. It is Paulette Giles, J-I-L-E-S. And Paulette Giles wrote one of her books that she wrote is called News of the World, and Tom Hanks made a movie out of it. And that is a story of a Union officer at the end of the war who makes his living by taking newspapers, and he charges a dime. He goes all through the West and charges a dime and will have these gatherings where people pay a dime to have the newspaper read to them. Wonderful movie. So if you get a chance to, to see the movie, it's very good. But the book was excellent. Along the way, he does rescue a uh, a young white girl who was captured by the Indians and raised by the Indians and is going to take her back to her shirt tail relations in Texas. So she goes with him. It, it's just charming. Well, her new one, she also writes Simon the Fiddler, who at the end of the Civil War, this man made his living fiddling through the war, uh, sees a beautiful woman and his, you know, he's obsessed. It's, it's just charming too. But this one is called Cheneville, C-H-E-N-N-E-V-I-L-L-E, -L -L -E, a novel of murder, loss, and vengeance by Paulette Giles. Uh, at the end of the Civil War, this man is wounded in the head in the final months of the Civil War. He's an Army, Union Army lieutenant, and he survives after recovering in a field hospital, uh, is sent home to St. Louis to recuperate. There he finds out that his sister, her husband, and their infant child were all murdered by a deputy sheriff. So after a year of rehabilitation, he decides he's strong enough to go after Dodd. This sets him on a path of vengeance, and he's a serial killer only seen through Cheneville's eyes. No one else believes him. Uh, so you, you follow him, this saga. It's especially if you like Larry McMurtry's Lonesome Dove or Geraldine Brooks, who does a wonderful, um, wonderful things with history. history. Um, I, I just thought it was wonderful. Really, really good. You know, you mentioned Larry, Mc, uh, Larry McMurtry, mm -hmm. and he had a bookstore in Washington, um, in near in Georgetown, as I recall. And uh, before he became <clears throat> the uh, well-known uh, writer about the West that he, you know, we talked about. Uh, uh, you, you, you mentioned uh, uh, one of his books. 
but he just had a bookstore and people would come in and you know he was a bookstore owner like you you know they he would yeah, chat he them was up a writer <laughs> he was but he became a writer and larry mcmurtry became uh, one of the great i i love listen, reading um, mm. mcmurtry's book and i love the movies that they made the tv uh spectaculars that uh, that they made uh, out of his books. They were just very good. The characters are just well, wonderful. Well, last week, uh, there is a a biography of Larry McMurtry. We just got uh, a copy of it, and it looks really good. It's I read about Larry, that. Larry McMurtry, A Life. Yeah. And I read about that in the uh, one of the uh, national uh, newspapers in their book review section, mm-hmm. and uh, it was good to remember. Uh, it brought me back to think about... Uh, all of his books are just uh, oh, lovely. I bet that's fascinating. Yeah. I bet that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. What's, what's right. next? Well, next is one that our manager, Diana, read and loved. And it's by uh, Zadie. Oh, um, let me see. Do I want to do this one? No. I want to go to another murder, sort of, not really a murder, but kind of a mystery kind of thing. And it's it's a called the Continental Affair by Christine Mangan, M-A-N-G-A-N. The Continental Affair is about uh, this is about Henri, who is a gendarme and part of a brutal police force that is suppressing Algeria's post-war independence protests in the 1960s Europe. He deserts because he cannot take the interrogation. And when he makes this clear break from his inner cop, he goes and becomes someone who handles money drops for a criminal organization led by his cousins. So he's waiting for a drop in the Alhambra in Grenada, Spain. And he watches Spellbound as a woman snatches the cash that he's supposed to get. He knows his life depends on bringing back the money, and he follows her. But he doesn't uh, confront her, sort of a little bit, he, because he's he's curious, and he's stupid, I think. But anyway, <laughs> she, this woman thinks that she has, this is her chance of escape. She's going to use this stolen money to purchase a train t- ticket to Paris. And Louise is this mysterious woman, and she's escaping a lifetime of servitude to her controlling father. Unfortunately, the Granada outfit sends a heavy to track Henri and Louise, and it's a cat and mouse chase from Paris to Istanbul. And it's, it's very slowly ratcheting tension uh, until, until the wonderful end. It's a, it's a kind of atmospheric blend of um, film noir, classic mystery intrigue, a little bit of travelogue on top of it. Yeah, gorgeous book. Gorgeous book. Really enjoyed it. Okay. And next? And next is the one that Diana read. It's called The Fraud by Zadie Smith. Zadie Smith has written a bestseller, uh, White Teeth on Beauty. Uh, she's uh, She lives in London. But this is about the cultural and literary life of Victorian England and extraordinary novel. She loved it. It draws on the career of historical novelist William Harrison Ainsworth. I've never heard of William Harrison Ainsworth, but this is the one he had at the Ainsworth Salon was famous for uh, his guests were Thackeray and was very close to Charles Dickens. So, where they would uh, opine until dawn on the issues of the day. And um, you throw in his cousin, who is a feisty Scott and uh, by marriage, single woman, and she gets involved in a legal case, that, a true story. I don't know if she was involved. I don't know about that for sure. But there was a legal case. Uh, of the Tichborne case, and that was about Roger Tichborne. He was the heir to the family title and fortunes, and supposedly he died in a shipwreck in 1854-25. But this, his mother still believes he's alive. She puts an ad in the paper in Australia, and this man comes forth saying that he is it. 
and it's all about so the the cousin of Ainsworth goes to the trial so that's kind of thrown in there too on top of that and you know readers of Geraldine Brooks or Hilary Mantel who does a lot of history uh, historical fiction and Diana just said it was just fascinating so got a little bit of court case and a little bit of of literary life in Victorian England thrown in I was just talking to someone today about a um, very complicated uh, appellate court case I had read, and I was trying to say, I've never, you know, this is what this particular appellate court opinion is so confusing, so uh, complicated, that it reminds you of the complications and the turgidity of the uh, English courts, which are, which was, uh, written about in <clears throat> Charles Dickens' book, Bleak House. Mm. And, and one of the best chapters in the English language, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, was the first chapter of Bleak House, in which it sets the tone for the entire book about the English uh, legal system, satirizing it. And it's about the case of Jarndyce versus Jarndyce. <laughs> and, it drag, and it starts out... The case of Jarndyce versus Jarndyce dragged on into its. <laughs> <laughs> it's better. I mean, the, it goes on. It's very funny. Um, but at any rate, okay, we're going to take well, a I break. Well, I was going to. I was okay. I was going to say, uh, you know, when you read as a lawyer, uh, when you read in fiction, some of these court cases, are you uh, <laughs> jaded or skeptical or? amused or all of the above? I will address that after the break. Sounds good. This is John Smetanker on With Respect, and we're talking to Robin Allen, <clears throat> pardon me, the, own, the owner of Forever Books in beautiful downtown St. Joseph, Michigan. And we're talking about Autumn Books. We'll be right back. back now on With Respect with Robin Allen, the owner of Forever Books, a bookstore in downtown St. Joseph, Michigan. We talk oh, four times a year about the new books that are coming out or old books that are of interest uh, to a particular time and, and place. Uh, we are always fascinated by each other's taste in reading, but at any rate, um, as I say, this is John Smetanka. So, Robin, you asked a good question, and it deserves a somewhat uh, useful answer. Uh, when a lawyer, or at least when this lawyer, reads a book about a court case, uh, or you know, not maybe murder, murder cases, but mostly court cases, or watches them on television, how do we react? And I will tell you how this lawyer reacts. Uh, very few books and very few authors capture adequately the world of the trial court, with things which are the reality of trial courts, the reality of what goes on day-to-day uh, -day in our court system. And we have a phrase which uh, is uh, considered to be um, part of the package of, of phrases that... Uh, especially trial lawyers, use, and that is, Sarah, you just can't make this stuff up. <laughs> and I had one, uh, one woman attorney in our firm that uh, we would walk down the hall. She would walk down to my office and, John, John, I got another one. You just can't make this stuff up. And I would do the same to her. But one of the problems 
I, I don't even know how uh, to describe. There are certain very famous authors who I don't particularly think captures um, adequately the spirit of the courtroom. And others uh, get it very well. Uh, I'm not going to get into all the authors, but uh, John Grisham does, I know he's extremely popular, but he just doesn't, doesn't get it for me. Uh, I was just going to ask you. <laughs> I'm sorry? I was just going to ask you about him. Yes. Well, um, there are some others. I find that some of the, the more interesting ones are actually writing about their own cases, the real, the real case. Uh, and when a lawyer writes about his or her own real case, um, they can bring to it, to the book, some nuances that um, television doesn't, doesn't carry. And books uh, by non-lawyers uh, don't carry, or lawyers who are writing fiction often don't get. And I'm just, there's one author which is very good, I'm, I'm trying to remember his name, um, he's a lawyer in Chicago, and uh, uh, he wrote. Uh, he writes a series of books about uh, cases that uh, I don't know whether he these are real cases, but he does capture uh, in in his books. He does capture some of the spectacularly interesting things. I was uh, scheduled to be on a jury recently. Scott in, Scott Turow. Yeah, there you go, Scott Turow, and Scott. Um, I can't tell the whole story except that uh, uh, he, uh, he was a friend of a friend, and, and I told him that I told his friend, I said, you know, next time you talk to Scott, tell him I really appreciated uh, reading his certain second or third book um, because it showed that there was life after, uh, after family turmoil. And so I got a picture. I got a, uh, about three days later, I got an autographed picture of Scott and it said, yes, John, uh, if life does uh, begin after 50, for, but only for trial lawyers. I thought, oh. <laughs> but that's any, great. At any rate. Great. But, uh, oh, yeah, so that. that's it. it it's okay. hard to capture. Um, and, and lawyers sometimes are the most boring people to have tell their stories because they're struggling with translating the legal technicalities of a case uh, into uh, the, the realities uh, of, of something which is interesting to the public. But um, John... Um, it, it, it's like some of these shows that are an hour long and the, and the case goes from start to finish in an hour. Oh, television show. Oh, yeah. And you there's, know it goes on for months, weeks, there's, months. There's two things which used to drive me crazy when I was in the prosecution. And that was there were TV shows like NCIS, which I love. I love NCIS. But it does have all these machines and instruments floating around. And this um, series of young, bright, and quite eccentric young women are running the lab, and they're coming up with all different kinds of... <laughs> and they've got bullets going. Th and it's just great. It doesn't happen. It's not real. There was a, there was a program years ago on television called Petroselli. Petrocelli, mm -hmm. and this this guy was a defense trial lawyer, and like uh, Perry Mason, he never had a guilty client, but he he would come in and, and the whole, it was an hour show, and he would you know this case would be starting, and and there would be the, some of the same things that really do happen, which is opening statements and that sort of thing, but then about it's almost like he got tired. The producer got tired of this going through a trial. At about the 40-minute mark, he turns to the, to the jury, and he says, all right, ladies and gentlemen, this is what really happened. Now this, this is the middle of a trial. I mean, this, the, the parties haven't rested. The witnesses are till test. He says, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you and show you what happened. All of a sudden, there's a video flashes across the screen, and it's the video story of the crime that, that he, he it does not happen. They're not, not videos of crimes. But at any rate, so I take it with a, with a, a uh, sort of a grain or a lick of salt. Now, I've taken off some of your time. What's next on the book line? Okay, I've got uh, uh, two or three 
And you just kind of, uh, I'm just not going to go into them too much so we can get to our other topic we were thinking about talking about. And uh, one is a nice little easy paperback that's just charming as can be, and it's called What You Are Looking For Is In The Library. And it's by Michiko Ayoma. I don't know how to pronounce it, I'm sorry, but uh, Michiko has written this chart, well, it follows five. It's a it's an uplifting debut. It's it's set in contemporary Tokyo, and it follows five characters at challenging crossroads in their lives, and each one finds a way forward at their neighborhood library, where an, an enigmatic librarian has an almost supernatural talent, of course, for connecting readers and books. So it's each character, and and they're all different age levels. Uh, one is 35, works in an accounts management uh, department store. Uh, one is 30 and unemployed and living with her mother, trained as an illustrator. Um, one is a 40-year-old former magazine editor who feels a little sidelined after maternity leave. Uh, one is a 65 and new, newly retired and finds himself kind of adrift. And it's a comforting read, and it's an homage to the transformative power of libraries. Nice little paperback. I'm going to toss one in uh, that I've been reading. I'm, I'm, I won't say I'm struggling with, but I, I have this thing called a, 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 practice, a law practice that I, I do, and uh, uh, therefore I don't have an awful lot of time for recreational reading. But one of my favorite authors is uh, J.B., uh, probably J.K. Rowling. And she has written uh, a series of books under the pseudonym uh, Robert Galbraith. And it's a fascinating uh, series. And I'm now on the last, the most recently released book called The Ink Black Heart. And Mm -hmm. it's 1,012 pages, which is challenging by anybody's standards. And to make it more complicated, it deals with a group of people, and I'm only halfway through it, but there's a group of people who online have created a game, a computer game, and uh, the question is, who has killed the founder of this particular game, this particular world? And it's called the Ink Black Heart, which is the, the, um, the name of the program. But it's it's complicated. You At one point, it's like... Uh, Lawrence Stern, the old English writer, that uh, would stop in the middle of his description uh, of his life and would put in a blank page. And he would mm-hmm. say, ladies and gentlemen, dear, dear readers, I'm doing this to give you a chance to write up uh, whatever you want, take, little, take notes. Or another page was a, a piece of marble uh, that, they w- that he said, now, I just want to stop here and say, here's a nice piece of marble that I saw when I was in... Uh, Italy, and I just thought I'd show it to you. But at any rate, that's well. But, well, her her next one comes out Tuesday. Comes out when in that series when? Tuesday on oh, her series. I'll it's, be darned. It's it's number seven in that series. It's called the Running Grave. Whoa! I'm now I'm yes, eager. yes, and so that is we'll have that, but uh, not until Tuesday. All right. Well, um, I, the until comment Tuesday. I have is you can have a short book which is uh, good, or a short book, which is boring. And you can have a long book, which is good, or a long book, book, which is boring. And this one happens to be a long book, which is very readable and a lot of fun. And she's a good writer. But And I now uh, move on to uh, the next uh, text. You're I, next. I would say that my favorite book of the year, uh, this year so far, is The Covenant of Water. And that book is, and we talked about that in the last, uh, I know we did, uh, the last show that we did. And that one, I think, has, I'm trying to remember how many, it's long. It's, uh, let me see here if I can look that up real quick. It is 736 pages. And it's, like you said, it's one of those books where you're getting, you're thinking, it's so daunting. But then you're halfway through and you're like, oh, I hope this doesn't end. Yeah, yeah. I hope it doesn't end. Yep, yep. It doesn't end. 
All right. So why don't we take a break? Unless you have okay. another another quick book we can talk I about. I do, but I think um, I think we can just uh, go on to. All right. We'll take a break now. Go on. We're talking to Robin Allen, the owner and uh, chief cook and bottle washer of Forever Books in uh, downtown St. Joseph, Michigan. And talking about books that uh, are of interest uh, coming up in the autumn of this year. This is John Smetanka, and we will be right back. back on With Respect with Robin Allen, the owner of Forever Books, a bookstore in downtown St. Joseph, Michigan. This is John Smetanka. Okay, you had one sh- a short one to talk about, and I'm going to move into a different topic after that. Okay. Um, I would say the, the last book that I'm going to talk about is called The Vaster Wilds, V-A-S-T-E-R-W-I-L-D-S. This book was one of the most nominated books for the month of September by, by independent booksellers. I read it. Uh, Lauren Groff is the author. She wrote an amazing book called Fates and Furies. And the last book that she wrote was uh, Matrix. Really good. It's about an adolescent servant girl who flees a Jamestown-esque settlement in colonial America. And it, it's quite a, it's Jamestown, diminished and starving settlement. And she has nothing but a small bag of supplies on her person and a map that she saw over a man's shoulder in her mind. Uh, in time, you learn the girl's names, her name, her circumstances as an orphan in a, Europe, uh, the hellish journey that brought her to this world, and how she became more than a servant to her mistress and the woman's disabled daughter who she loved and cared for, and the reason ultimately for the girl's flight. And uh, many exciting episodes in her escape. It's, uh, you know, Publishers Weekly says this is a triumph, but this, this author's been a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, uh, and regularly appears in the New Yorker, the Atlantic, and like I said, it's it's quite. I have a few book clubs that are reading this book, and I'm really curious to what they what they say about it. I mean, wrenching beauty, wrenching beauty. Okay. So that's that. Okay. All right. Well, now let me. T- we're going to start a topic that I've sure. uh, been fascinated by because, <clears throat> first of all, we're talking about children's books. This is what I want to talk about. Okay. Now, when I talk about children, I mean not the 15-year-old, the 18-year-old, 17, 13, whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about four, five, and six. And it's intriguing to me because I have grandchildren who are that age. And I've also, I also remember that, that about that age, for me, was the time that I got start reading. And I, something captured me. Uh, about reading at that period of time. My taste changed, but certainly the concept of reading was something that caught me uh, back in, uh, when I was that old. I was talking to a friend uh, today about this concept of how children get turned on to reading, and, and she has some grandchildren, and we were talking about how uh, she was re- trying to find books to read to her grandchildren, and she brought out, apparently, one or two books that when she was a kid, that age, they, uh, she loved. And that was her introduction to reading, and she's a tremendous reader. And so I said, well, that's great. Did you, did you tell those to the kids? She said, yeah, and they're boring. They're bored. And I looked at the two, you know, the different generation, the books that they are interested in, which are a completely different genre, different presentation of content and pictures and, and whatnot. 
And I was, so it led me to think about this. Has there been sort of a seismic change, tectonic plate change in how kids are introduced to books? Uh, young children uh, uh, being uh, introduced to books between when we were kids, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, 1000, 2000. What do you think? Well, when I opened the store, twenty will be 25 in April, uh, when I opened the store, picture books. And the picture books are uh, books with pictures and a story, uh, as opposed to beginning readers that usually have chapters to them. So picture books were considered for ages four through eight. Uh, and what has happened is, in, in our day, Kids were learning to read in first and the second grade. Uh, I mean, I was a very early reader, but uh, I think it was four. But once kids learn now how to read, they eschew any kind of picture book. They're, I'm sorry, I, to, to, quote my, to quote my nieces, Auntie Robin, we don't read those books anymore. We read chapter books. And so they miss on all of that wonderful picture book experience where you have one story and illustrations or you can be or read aloud or or I made them read me the picture books and they enjoyed those. Uh, so now I would say our picture books and the picture book industry has just plummeted. Uh, I think we just returned boxes and boxes of picture books because they're just not selling, which is a, just a crime because there's so many wonderful ones. On the other hand, there is, for instance, there is a series called Elephant and Piggy. And my niece brought me Elephant and Piggy years ago. It's uh, by Mo Willems. And Elephant and Piggy are friends, sort of like Bert and Ernie from Sesame Street. And there's maybe three words on a page, but it's the interaction between and the friendship between Elephant and Piggy. And I thought it was boring and the kids just loved it. And it is one of the best selling series. Uh, he also did Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus. And I said, I just, Diane, I don't get this book. There's no words in it. I mean, it's just, and, and the drawings are very simple. It's the illustrations are nothing. I mean, I think I could probably draw them, but I, my niece read it to me. It was the very first book that she ever read and she giggled through the whole thing. And there, there it is. It, if it captures your imagination, if the characters are likable, lovable, if there's humor, if there's the interaction is between the two, the kids can relate to that as children, then I think it doesn't matter what you know sometimes that same author who wrote a, a brilliant book he tries again the same kind of formula and just is he writing for the kids or is he writing for the adult you know and mm -hmm. sometimes sometimes that book that picture book captures both the adult and the child uh, and that's that's a rare picture book so I don't, when I do the buying, I'm doing the buying now for uh, spring uh, through April. And I very rarely will pick up a picture book unless it really captures me. So if you see a picture book in the store, it's because I absolutely love it. Because picture books just, uh, it, it, they're, they're tough. They're really tough. It's a shame. Well, what is a chapter book then? Is that more densely written or yes it has chapters chapter one chapter two chapter three okay Whereas picture book is all one story ah yeah oh, good now i understand yes so they call them chapter books there's also what they call beginning readers and some chapter books are beginning readers we have a whole beginning reader section dragons are big now hmm. you know, uh, unicorns are still okay uh, they're kind of waning a little bit. But Dragons, now there's even a, a series, Dragons for Girls. She's a dragon hunter or whatever mm -hmm. girl. Uh, and things, I, I'm trying to think, I don't remember back that far. I mean, I, for me, my age, it was 
it was, uh, to make your point, it was Little House on the Prairie. And I reread it years later and went, this is boring. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was boring. So, I, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think the writing and the, and the subject matter, you have to realize that what you and I watched on television as children is a lot different than what kids are watching now on television. Amen to that. Amen. It's fast and moving and irreverent and sometimes a little inappropriate um, uh, to the point of maybe there's some making fun of people kind mm -hmm. of thing mm -hmm. that uh, I think is not, you know, in the best interest. But yeah. so, and that carries on in some of the picture books and that carries on in some literature. And uh, one of the characters is that in a beginning reader series that was very popular years ago was Junie B. Jones. And Junie B. Jones has a bit of a smart mouth on her and very popular, very popular. And I think that's kind of, uh, she has since passed away, the author, beloved, beloved author. But uh, I think it was a little, you know, a little much at the time. I don't know, maybe it wouldn't be so much now with the way things, people talk. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I don't know how that goes. The, the other thing is kids, that gap between the picture book and the beginning reader, I would say the four or five-year-old and the first and second grader, uh, there's been a gap filled by graphic books. They're not really graphic novels. They call them graphic novels, but they're not. Lots of pictures with the um, with the text. So you might have, he drove the car, and instead of the word car, there's a car, a drawing of a car. Mm -hmm. Or there's cartoons, sort of like Diary of a Wimpy Kid that was really popular. So we kind of call that graphic novels. And in some of the beginning readers, like I was talking about the dragons, there'll be hardly any text on the page. It's all pictures. Mm -hmm. So I think it's maybe a, a, a gap between picture books and beginning readers. We're very, I, I talked about this with, with Diana, and we're really sad because when they get beyond the beginning readers, when there's a really wonderful story, a novel, uh, it won't grab their attention as much. And the, and so that section really has not been selling as well, which is just oh, heartbreaking. So well, many good books. I will simply comment this way. When my, uh, I had occasion to go into uh, an elementary school uh, when my daughter, or actually no, high school when my daughter was, uh, no, it was um, sixth grade or seventh grade when, when my daughter was in school. And I talked to this professor about, um, uh, he was, teaching English, and I asked him about, well, uh, how do you, do you, what kind of um, method do you use in teaching phonics for reading? And he looked at me like I was speaking uh, Swahili or something, and he said, oh, sir, we don't do that. We don't, we don't worry about uh, have, teaching our kids to look at letters and, and syllables. That's, you know, we used to do that. Now what we do is we have them just look, get a, get a big picture, and uh, kind of think your way through it. And I said, you mean like yeah. the think method and the music man? He said, yeah, that's what. <laughs> I well, but now, I, I learned phonics, and uh, and uh, my sister, who's sixteen years younger than I, learned sight words. Mm -hmm. And now I asked a teacher recently, how do they teach now? She goes, a little bit of each. <laughs> so I, I don't know because children learn differently, I guess. My sister learns phonetically, but she was taught sight. <laughs> I was taught phonetically. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that one of the things I would toss in that we have so much more of video that kids are raised on yeah. that that, you know, they think that the whole world has to be in, in color and graphics and CGI and whatnot. 
and, and quick and fast and quick and fast and, yeah and, and to settle down for a book for but i have to say uh, one of my, one of my nieces uh i think she goes to south i don't know which school she goes to in, in indiana but the, she says i have 11 periods she's 10 years old i have 11 periods I go what are they and one of them was you read for one whole period reading hmm. reading a book I, I was like oh yes we have to slow down and and read a book yeah so. yeah well robin always allen, hopeful always hopeful john always yeah. hopeful robin allen thank you very much for joining thank us you. we're out of time unfortunately we could keep on talking forever about our favorite topic was which is books this is uh john smetanka on with respect and remember our motto from week to week if you show respect to other people they will Show respect to you. Mm -hmm.